From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. This is but a taste of the terror that Saruman will unleash. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Golden Halls of Meduseld, episode number 10 on 2002's Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. To reiterate some announcements up top, our Patreon that's been supporting this, patreon.com slash bomb, is going to be converting to a full-time My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast Patreon, which will include new bonuses, new tiers, um, extra Patreon-exclusive episodes, and maybe most of all, we are going to establish a Discord for people um, to chat about our episodes and also to chat about The Rings of Power, which is coming next month, or two months from now, something like that. Um, and also, uh, I just want to remind everyone that our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com. We just got a lovely four page PDF email on the ends from our friend Wilf um, that we look forward to discussing on an upcoming episode. But we would honestly love to hear from more of you. If we can get, you know, enough mail uh, to us, we will consider doing mailbag episodes uh, so we can kind of interact more directly with you, and I'm sure y'all want to pick our insane brains a little bit um, to see what kind of insanity lives there. <laughs> okay, so I think uh, I'm going to start this off with a bit of a uh, dry irony here. Uh, I think I've held off on the bra burning feminism stuff for a decent amount of time in this podcast. We're in like what episode thirty something now, uh, and I've been <laughs> quiet. I think no, I'm just kidding. I haven't, but I'm going to go even crazier this time. Um, I would like to talk to you all about one of my very favorite things to bitch about, which is uh, the issue of women and violence in cinema. Um, and it's such a, you know, it like it's an interesting topic, but it's one of these topics that's like very, very difficult to talk about because obviously it uh, raises a lot of like perfectly justifiable and reasonable emotions in people. Uh, so if I sound like I'm reading off of a script more than usual, it's because I am because I got scared as hell about this and was like, write down every word you moron because you're, you're going to like somehow find a way to say everything wrong and then you're going to get yourself canceled into oblivion. So here it is, me reading off the script. Enjoy, folks. That'll be really entertaining. Um, anyways, so to get to this issue of like women and, and violence in cinema, we have to like kind of think about why do we have violence in cinema? And I'm not going to like give you a whole kind of academic dissertation on this. I think like really we can boil it down to two reasons, right? Like we use violence in cinema for reasons of like emotional catharsis. So for this, I want you to think about like Inglorious Bastards or for example, Hermione decking Draco Malfoy and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which for me and probably for a lot of girls my age was such a fucking moment, like life-changing moment. But uh, even now, despite the kind of latter-day reputation of those films and the books, um, it still feels good to think about. Uh, and then the kind of other reason that we have violence in, in film 
uh, is, is for spectacle uh, and in that you know just like Helm's Deep uh, I think these movies are kind of the exemplar of violence as spectacle and, and film and and this kind of um I don't want to make it seem like uh violence that's done for spectacle is done for an apolitical fashion um it absolutely is and I feel like <laughs> I, I maybe kind of beat the drum on that on this podcast quite a lot that there's not really such a thing as any apolitical violence on film but it's not really the kind of like um explicit uh, political that I am interested in, in 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 this discussion at least. So, not concerned with that one, um, or at least not primarily. What I am concerned with uh, is violence as emotional catharsis. Uh, and to kind of get into this, it's worth talking about how we set up good catharsis, a good moment of catharsis, in in uh, in film, in cinema, in writing generally. Uh, and I will give my sort of. Uh, desperate apologies to the classicists <laughs> and the like trained uh lit critics out there because i know i'm gonna give like a really bastardized version of catharsis and certainly not the one uh that we get from ancient greece but uh this is basically how catharsis is kind of like commonly used by by us lay people so to set up good catharsis you need to do a couple of things first you have to set up an emotional baseline from which to create that emotional release that we call catharsis in the case of most women's stories, that involves ratcheting up the amount of experienced misogyny that we as the audience are privy to. So, in other words, you actually see women suffering by virtue of their womanhood. So think, for example, uh, a stereotypical tough girl who tries to play basketball with, say, her brother's team, but she's told that she can't do it because she's a girl, and there's not reference to her skill or her potential as a basketball player. So that's the emotional baseline. This is someone who has expressed an interest in playing basketball, but has been told no, rejected on the basis of her womanhood. Thereafter, you need to build up a character who is aware of the injustice of it all and has or potentially has the power to react against it in some way. So it's not just a kind of null, deeply grim kind of emotional failure. So imagine that we later see that girl who was turned away absolutely nailing like three pointers without breaking a sweat. And we also see her articulating that she knows that she was only turned away because she was a girl. We've got then that character who has the potential for an emotional release and a reason for that emotional release. Next, you need a, an opportunity for that character to come into a potentially painful conflict with the reality of the world they inhabit and or the thing they want. So imagine our girl has found another team to play on and now has to play a headliner game against her brother's team. She wants to win because she wants to win, but beating her brother's team would be emotionally awful for her. I mean, I don't know. I, if you can't tell from here, I'm an only child, so maybe beating your brother's team would be fucking brilliant. But whatever. Not the example here. So then from here, you have a moment, or you need a moment, of emotional release. In this example, she sinks the shot that wins the game, ultimately proving that girls can, Jay-Z voice, ball so hard. But it's still going to be twinged with that tragedy of knowing that it's come at cost to her brother's happiness no matter how fleeting that happiness would have been. Cathartic violence executed by women is meant to kind of inhabit that same model. It's meant to symbolize all the pain and violence that women face thanks to patriarchy, and then speed up that emotional release by unleashing it on others, deserving or undeserving. It's basically a way of saying, fiction is fiction, which means the things that count, count less. So this is a safe space for us to imagine our ourselves meeting out that violence that is forced on us day in, day out. We do it in fiction because fiction isn't real and because it comes with the simultaneous recognition that actually this violence isn't ultimately a good thing, even if it does feel good. 
But this actually isn't how women's violence tends to play out in pop culture. And unfortunately, at this point in the Lord of the Rings films, we start to see that become true here. So start with the setup to, I was going to say women, but really it's one woman, it's Eowyn, and her arc with violence. In this movie, instead of aggressive patriarchy, this movie's actually too scared of condemning its men characters, so it only does it in the abstract. For example, it has Grima kind of stand in for all of patriarchy. And then you've got a woman who has had her consciousness raised, but it's unclear against what. Like, no men tell her that on the basis of her gender, either explicitly or implicitly, that she can't do something. They all seem basically supportive, if a bit skeptical. And then by the time we actually see her get told no on the basis of her gender, and even this moment is undercut by putting it in the same breath as Mary's rejection, we can see that she's already dead set on her decision to go fight. But unlike the books, Eowyn doesn't do the all your words are but to say bit. She's mostly just annoyed that Aragorn doesn't love her, which is not to say that that's not the subtext of the book, but it's a far lesser point to her wider complaint about not being treated like a woman of her rank and station. So, and what we see, uh, which actually ends up becoming the case across pop culture generally, is a failure to look at patriarchy as a system instead of as a series of specific actions. Instead of recognizing that, yes, even the nicest, loveliest, most heroic men can do things that reinforce the patriarchy, even if it's unintentional, we instead see movies that waffle around this point. There's a failure to recognize that, actually, good guys can do bad things. And so the only men in movies that end up doing misogynistic things are the bad guys. But this makes it really hard to build up that emotional friction that's so necessary to building good catharsis. Why would our women characters be so bad out of shape if only truly evil guys tell them no? We already know they're evil. And then, because there's this failure to build up emotional friction, the actual violence done just feels hollow. Eowyn's moment is great, I'm not going to deny that. But I think it's really only great because we, as the audience, have done most of the work ourselves by imagining why this is so important and transferring our expectations onto the story instead of inferring it from the actual narrative. We really fucking love seeing her chop the Witch King's head off, but that's really only like that because we really like seeing a woman do violence, not because the movie actually tells us this is a really important thing for her her to do and not just anyone. And this is, of course, endemic across cinema. You see violence, but nobody's asking why we need this violence, except that violence is the norm. And I'm not arguing against cinematic violence generally here. I do think it's basically fine. I just think you have to have a good reason for it if you're going to insist that you actually have a reason for it. And this sounds like a tautology, but I will note that all of the press, particularly in light of the 20th anniversary of these films, has basically circled around this idea that Eowyn is this ur-feminist character and that she was already always written with feminist intentions. Now, maybe this is true. Maybe she was always written with feminist intentions. But I think because the writers have set, have cast down that gauntlet, we then have to question to what extent were they thinking from a feminist perspective when they were writing her and to what extent were they successful in writing a feminist character. The only reason that we're applying this framework here is because they've set, they as the writers have set out that framework for themselves. If in this 20th anniversary of The Two Towers, 
they went and said, actually, we just had Eowyn lob off the Witch King's head because it looks cool as fuck, then great. You're right. It does look cool as fuck. We don't need to think about this too hard. But that isn't the case. There's been this retrospective applying application of the label of feminist and feminist violence to Eowyn, so it merits some further insight. And I think it's also really important, given this kind of over-conflation of women with swords with goodness by mainstream feminism. I think women with swords can be good, sure, but it has to be done purposefully. And you see this sort of weak sauce attempt to be like, well, any woman who wields a gun is actually a feminist icon without paying attention to the fact that women with guns can still do horrible acts of violence. I'm sure we all remember those awful fucking pictures out of St. Louis of middle-class families standing outside of their McMansion with the big old shotguns. That is a woman there holding a gun. Now, just because she's not skinny and doesn't look like Kate Blanchett doesn't mean she doesn't fulfill that requirement set out by cinema. Why would we condemn her in one breath but be excited about, for example, Atomic Blonde in the other, unless we think carefully about the ideology? And of course, these warrior women are everywhere in cinema right now. Uh, Literally, (laughs) five minutes before starting to record this podcast, uh, the trailer for a new Game of Thrones TV show, spinoff TV show, came out that is literally centered around the concept of women and violence and and women and monastic violence. Now, I'm not going to like... Not monastic, sorry, monarchic. That would be a much funnier show if they were all monks, though. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd watch that Game of Thrones show where monks do violence, uh, but this isn't the one that they're actually giving us, and, and I'm not knocking it yet because I'm sure I'll watch it. But again, another central tenet, a central organizing principle of this TV show is going to be violence in women. And we obviously don't know very much about it. Well, I don't know very much about it just yet because I'm fucking illiterate and haven't read any of the Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire books uh, and only saw this like one minute long teaser trailer. But we don't know what they're going to say about women and violence in this film yet or in this TV show yet. So we can't guess too much. But there are so many other women in the cinematic landscape who do violence that is later called feminist that we don't really consider with any seriousness. And I think this, as we get into the kind of true start of Eowyn's hashtag violence arc, is really something that we should all kind of sit and <laughs> ponder uh, as we get ready to go. Yeah. First, um, I, I need to offer kind of an apology because I made sure that Emily had a good uh, sports scenario to explain what her point was. <laughs> and then I just realized it's mostly the episode of The Simpsons, Lisa on Ice, where her and Bart oh, are on op- <laughs> opposing peewee hockey teams. Oh, my God. Um, but they actually have a very wholesome ending where uh, they face off in a, what, face-off shootout? Whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, and they both kind of lay down their quote-unquote weapons and then walk <laughs> off the uh, field or rink. At, you can clearly tell hockey is not my sport. But um, yeah, Classic. and I think th- honestly like the AON I am no man uh, moment has always been one that I've had kind of complicated feelings around. Um, and I think you kind of hit exactly why because I don't feel like the films themselves are building or saying anything with it other than what I've projected to what that moment might mean for women or anyone of any kind of marginalized gender uh, watching that for the first time. And like, oh, it's cool that someone else gets to do something. Um, And then all the baggage of like 90s feminism and kind of like the state of the film industry, um, especially Mm -hmm. in 2002, which was even more bleak than now. Well, in ways. Uh, (laughs) So like, and but it was also something that, you know, 
basically everyone told me is one of their favorite moments of the trilogy, their favorite moment of Return of the King. Uh, a couple, like a couple months ago, I put out a tweet, like, what is your favorite moment from the Lord of the Rings? And it's very possible that that Eowyn, I am no man uh, moment is like the one that was most cited. And even, you know, I don't feel great saying, oh, actually it sucks. And I don't think it sucks, but it's just like, I don't feel like me commenting on it has any real value. Um, but I think it is because we've all put our expectations and our own experiences into that moment and Eowyn's arc overall, that that's why it's become such a powerful moment in pop culture because a lot of what we put into it and maybe less so the kind of work the film did for it. Um, which actually gets me to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. Haha, ha, have you heard? I'm joining hey. Cast podcast. Um, but I... Um, I don't have the exact quote right with me right now, and I looked really hard before this for about 10 minutes um, <laughs> from this Sophie Turner quote um, about why she was attracted to uh, playing Sansa Stark and being in this Game of Thrones adaptation. And one thing she said is um, how a lot of pop culture has characters like or similar to an Arya Stark or Brienne of Tarth or Daenerys Targaryen, uh, women characters that are dressed up in kind of masculine trappings or in yes. masculine roles, whether that's assassin or warrior or conqueror, which, you know, those three characters kind of represent. And what she really um, was drawn to was the fact that there was an opportunity to depict women in the realm of femininity, exercising, but also being victims of power within, um, you know, a broader, you know, patriarchal system. And obviously I'm dressing up her words a little bit with kind of the language we use now to talk about this. Um, but I think that that's a good way of showing how, yes, you know, you can put a woman with a sword in her hands on screen and make it awesome. But then there's also ways they can do that completely in the realm of court and politics. Um, and like using what we would possibly call soft power mm -hmm. or powers of di diplomacy or like rules like guest right. And like what you do when you welcome people into your home or welcome a King into your home, like all of those things can be tools for exercising and showing power. Um, but don't fall under gen general masculine or martial trappings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love that quote. Um, the, the Sophie Turner one. Um, and I think it's actually kind of interesting because, um, I think Sophie Turner and I are probably within a couple years of one another in age. Um, and so, so definitely kind of both grew up on, on more or less the same media diet. Um, certainly that kind of weird Brit, uh, like incursion there. <laughs> um, but like, I think one of the things that, that is important for me in, in kind of discussions of this is there seems to be a conflation of like, uh, basically at what, what you're getting at there, uh, conflation of violence with empowerment um, and and a, a kind of view that any sort of soft power is inherently weak and 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 not the same level of purpose as men. Um, and actually, again, I hate to go back to this. Uh, no, I don't hate to go back to this. That's mean. Uh, I hate to go back to Game of Thrones, uh, which I don't. But, but again, that scene in, I think it's like the first season where Cersei Lannister is like power is power and she has all of her like, uh, Roman centurions or whatever they are, like mm -hmm. threaten to kill uh, Peter Baelish. Um, and and that scene to me, I'm not saying it was like a feminist triumph, but I think it was a really interesting scene to me um, because it looked at violence in a very different way. Uh, and like, I, it was a, it was a violent scene. Uh, like nobody dies, nobody actually really gets hurt, but is a scene where like the threat of violence is used. Um, and I think that's actually far more reflective of the kind of violence that women 
suffer under patriarchy than than the sort of like swords and cannons uh, violence, which is not to say that like women don't suffer actual physical violence. They absolutely do all the time. Like like a, like physical hand to hand violence is uh, or even gun violence is, is something that uh, affects women uh, disproportionately. Uh, and I don't want to like elide that, but, but once you kind of move past that realm of like the, that, that spectacle of violence, there is this more kind of quotidian violence that, that women face that is the threat of rather than the actual like act of violence. Uh, and that scene to me always kind of struck that note of like, this gets in a weird unintentional way, what patriarchal violence actually is like most of the time. Um, because patriarchal violence isn't that uh, around every corner there is a man rapist waiting to like murder you, rape and kill you. That's not what it is. It's the it is the constant assertion that that threat is true. Um, even though we know it's not true, it is it is being told all of the time that there is always some sort of actual physical act of violence waiting to force you back into into femininity, into this sort of subservient position. And so to see Cersei Lannister uh, have that kind of, uh, like, kind of reverse take on it, where, like, Peter Baelish, who, like, owns a brothel, I think, like, who definitely does use that kind of violence against women, has to be put in that subservient position by a woman without her ever having, having to draw a sword is really, really interesting. And it's, like, a, it's a kind of really important kind of moment of... Um, moral like uh questioning i guess uh for how the show and I, maybe the books uh treats women and power um, and i think it's also kind of interestingly different to like aon's situation because um aon's situation at least in the books is such that she has no other power besides the sword and it's very clear that this is a like she sees it as the only possible option, but it's very clear that this is her last resort. And, and she has been so thoroughly disempowered in every other imaginable way that even the kind of tools that we would consider more feminist or like feminine rather pursuits of power aren't available to her. The only thing she can do is either kill or be killed. And, and that's critical to why she uses this violence. And the fact that Cersei in her comparison, where she does have all of these other options available to her, uh, chooses to not do something that is an explicit act of violence is that great counterpoint there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even her uh, little coup against Ned Stark, which takes place like in the middle near the end of uh, season one, um, because uh, Ned Stark has figured out that, you know, her kids are bastards born from incest and like, you know, they have no claim to the throne and Ned Stark and, you know, what's a good kind of play on masculinity. He actually shows some mercy is like, hey, Cersei, you know, get out of here with your kids. That way, Robert's wrath won't follow you. And, you know, maybe you can avoid it and maybe you can still live a good life. And Cersei just responds, what about my wrath, Lord Stark? Mm -hmm. um, and then what she engineers is this entire coup where Ned Stark thinks he's going to seize Joffrey and take the throne as Hand of the King for himself. But because she was able to get Littlefinger on her side, she was able to capture Sansa in a way to make her think that by helping Cersei, she was helping her father. And then she got the police of King's Landing, the gold cloaks all like bought and paid for. And as a result, when Ned Stark marches into the throne room to, you know, essentially take over the realm, she's already, you know, she rips up uh, the letter from Robert and then she basically has the police seize everyone or kill everyone. Um, and even though she herself never draws a sword, like you say, um, she has exercised power to the fullest, um, which, you know, is great. And um, she also has a kind of a speech at near the end of season two where she's talking to Sansa and she's quite drunk at this point. And she's talking about how me and Jamie were identical as kids. And I was always like, 
buggered off about why I never got to play with swords or lances like Jamie did, but I got to, you know, wear dresses and all that. And she would talk about her and Jamie would like switch roles some days because they couldn't be told apart at a very young age. And she would actually, you know, play with swords and stuff. But even then she kind of returned back to her realm, so to speak, but that never stopped her desire for power. And when we talk about Cersei Lannister, she's very clearly a antagonist character, I'll just say. Like, I'm not saying she's supposed to be aspirational, but we see how she's using levers of power that are available to her and only available to her because of her station in this patriarchal, monarchal system. Um, and it's it's really kind of just fascinating. Like, it's actually examining what those levers of power are, how they're used, and how they're how other people think about, say, a woman using those levers of power, how they're being... Um, you know, possibly cunning or clever or, you know, kind of devious with it. Um, mm. I'm going to kind of stop there because I'm kind of losing my train of thought. <laughs> no, no, um, I, I think that's also totally right. And like, there, there's kind of something interesting as well, because um, I think these kind of now I'm not going to give like the Game of Thrones show writers credit for being like super aware of how uh, like Oh, they are. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not going to give them credit for thinking like for being aware of like cultural expectations of women, but like, um, you know, when you see women doing violence, whether this is a good thing or not, it is simply true that seeing woman doing a woman doing violence seems and feels and registers differently to us than seeing a man doing violence. And that's because it's so much more commonplace to see men doing acts of violence than women. Um, and given that that is true, um, and given that if you are like a conscientious artist, uh, you should be aware of that, it bears questioning how and why we have these scenes of women doing violence and i'm not like saying oh we shouldn't show the, you know oh the poor kids having to see women doing violence i'm not saying that that's true but i'm saying what does it say about violence and the show of it when we have when we employ a woman for the shock value of it like one of the things i think about is um atomic blonde and sort of the the meta discourse around that um where you know we all kind of recognize that john wick is a is a series that uses violence as spectacle and there's you know to quote that old Reddit favorite, it's not that deep. Um, but the minute that they take the John Wick premise and, you know, put it in a, you know, put a woman in it in his place, suddenly it gets this hue of, oh, apparently this is feminist and apparently this is progressive. And I have to ask the question again to roll out that old uh reddit favorite i'm just asking questions but why is it that we wouldn't see the violence in john wick as progressive but the minute you put a woman in there doing something that we should all agree is equally morally reprehensible it's suddenly progressive and my argument is it isn't we're just kind of fed really shitty dumb versions of feminism because because feminism has basically been bastardized to the point where like it means about as much as like a declaration of like liberalism by someone who just obviously isn't a liberal. Um, like unfortunately for mainstream feminism, feminism does actually have definitions and does have actually have specific ideological tenets. Uh, and, uh, you know, woman on screen is, is not one of those definitions. Um, and I think, you know, as part of this sort of meta discourse in light of Eowyn and, and, and in light of the 20th anniversary of, of Two Towers, um, given that Tolkien's base plot for Eowyn in the books is such a fantastically nuanced 
and complex look at the relationship and, and, you know, probably incidentally complex look at the relationship between women and violence and warfare. Um, Why is it that we accept and even label as more feminist a portrayal that weakens that accidentally feminist credentials? Like, why is it that we're okay with this kind of bastardized version of feminism as long as we get the violence that we so crave? And what are we getting emotionally and politically out of that that we're not getting out of a far more nuanced and, like, unfortunately, strangely ideologically coherent take? I mean, I got to believe some of the answer to that is just that at some level, people and audiences are starved for something Mm. (laughs) um, along those lines just because – I mean, even now, I don't know how great it is, but if you like think back then, like who are like, like you have like uh, Ripley from um, the Alien films, uh, Leia from Star Wars. Um, oh, I just had another one that I did, Trinity from the Matrix was making, you know, a big splash in the in that same time frame. Um, but I think people were just like, where are the women at? <laughs> um, like, or like, where is some kind of story? It's the same way that like, um, I would say, you know, people of color and queer people now are kind of just desperate for scraps from Disney for any kind of like representation. And sometimes, you know, that desperation wins out. Like, I know Miss Marvel isn't the greatest television show and it's probably not one of, you know, the best television shows I've watched this year, but um, it was refreshing to see South Asians on screen at some level doing stuff that isn't driving a cab or programming computers. Um, so at some level, I can understand why it gets that cultural foothold. But at the same time, I think we need to be questioning um, if the way or the reasons it did grab that foothold are in line with either what it was trying to adapt, if it like bastardized it. Um, In the end, I just feel like anything coming out of Hollywood or a major American production, its feminism is still made to fit neatly into the American project. Um, And that's why if you do if you do have something like Atomic Blonde, where the main character is a woman, but she's shooting guns and killing, quote unquote, bad people, um, that's viewed as empowerment because in the end, it still holds up violence and kind of the systems that are in place. Um, And it kind of gives the fantasy of a way to kind of fight against it, but still within the confines of the overall system. Um, So you're like pushing back against like small um, misogyny or Mm -hmm. bigotry, but like the big um, misogyny or bigotry, that's like the systems that are in place um, go unaltered Um, and not just unaltered, but broadly unexamined. Like at no point are we questioning why this is, the way for Atomic Blonde. And I saw the movie, I didn't love it, and I don't really remember anything about it. Um, So I'm going to stop myself there. But I think those are the kind of things that I'm looking for a little more when we're inherently doing political things like, you know, making a, you know, like making a movie like Atomic Blonde. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the other thing, like, I feel feel like I should kind of go back to here is that, like, I'm not against women doing violent acts in in fiction. Like, I I cannot stress this enough. Eowyn's scene in Return of the King at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields when she has that back and forth with the Witch King and then ultimately marks him is one of these moments where I sat there and I read it for the first time and I felt a rush through me and I felt like the the hair on the back of my neck stick up and I was like, oh fuck, that was a really good scene and that was like a really good and kind of uh, not totally complete 
feeling of catharsis, but near to totally complete feeling of catharsis. And and as I will kind of argue throughout the next however many episodes of this podcast, like I, I think the actual conclusion of her catharsis is in the houses of healing. Um, you know, I, I I think there's there's a lot of merit to seeing women do acts of violence because it does feel good. It does scratch that emotional itch. My kind of question is like, is it being set up as it should be? Uh, and I think, you know, part of this comes down to my kind of upset at the fact that like the actual existing patriarchy in the text was neutered by the screenwriters because they didn't want to have to contend with the fact that um, Eomer and Theoden and Aragorn and uh, yeah, they're kind of the key folks uh, could also be misogynists who are reinforcing patriarchy because it couldn't, the, the screenwriters couldn't contend with a world in which like good people do bad things. Uh, and, and so for me, that kind of whole uh, potential for emotional catharsis in this film um, using Eowyn's plot is just totally, totally taken out back and shot like a sick horse uh, because, because it's just not kind of built in that sense of like inherent conflict and tension that, that uh, is inherent to what it means to be a woman living under patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I think your spiel to open up this uh, discussion really kind of like hit me like who exactly is holding Eowyn down because <laughs> yeah. they never really make that clear. Like and I think that that is where the filmmakers are assuming we're just bringing our modern 2002 prejudices into this. And we just assume women are relegated uh, based on, you know, kind of the medieval uh, pastiche that these films are based on or at least, uh, you know visually um like i think they're assuming we're bringing our own misogyny and we assume yeah. like aon is like fighting against that um like my favorite um yeah my favorite display of uh, a woman doing violence is uh in game of thrones in season three when daenerys burns down astapor uh you know mm. she unleashes her still kind of fledgling dragons on the slavers uh she wins the unsullied army um and it's a great cathartic moment because we've seen Daenerys go through shit, go through shit directly as a result of the patriarchy because she's a woman and not viewed as someone who can rule one day and all that sort of stuff. But after that great, tremendous victory, we actually see the cost of the violence. We see the other slave cities rise up against her. We see the quagmire she uh, winds up while she's, you know, trying to be queen in the East. And this is all stuff the show kind of, fast forwarded through in a way that George <laughs> Martin hasn't. In fact, it's part of the reason George Martin hasn't finished the books is because he can't kind of write himself out of the Daenerys political situation out East. But I think that's always been why I've loved A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones is you have these incredible, like cathartic hero moments or victory moments or these great moments for your characters, but the actual consequence of them is never elided or what it means. Or, you know, the fact that people are now, I hear Daenerys Targaryen's mad. She's just burning down cities, whole cloth and how that negatively affects her future political campaigns. Like there's always that cost there. And it's not just viewed as a single moment that exists out of context so that people can, you know, talk about how awesome this character is kind of thing. And I feel like, I mean, the worst example of it is probably in Avengers Endgame, um, mm. just because. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. And, you know, I, I admittedly generally like that movie. Um, but this is um, those two last two Avenger movies. They kill off the only two main woman characters they had established <laughs> in the saga between Gamora and Black Widow. And then they have. Um, what's it called? This big, you know, woman gathering for a battle scene that's kind of like doesn't make sense in the context of the scene and really only exists as a moment for the audience. Um, but it's all characters that you can just point to as like, 
that character is underserved. That character is made of a joke. An entire man or an entire movie is dedicated to one man calling that woman character ugly. Like, <laughs> it's like, what, what are we even doing here? You know, um, and I think, you know, maybe the Aowen stuff also gets a little more of a pass just because the movies themselves are considered just like so much better. Yeah. Um, so it's just like, yeah, well, you know, it's clunky, but it worked, you know, it's clunky at a scale relative to the movies. And, you know, um, it, you you forgive it more when you're generally having an awesome time at the movie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are kind of like my scattered thoughts kind of around all that stuff. But I think you're spot on with all this. I, I think kind of my my like maybe my raison d'etre or whatever with this podcast uh, generally, but also with this kind of discussion in particular is like to keep emphasizing the point that like things can be good and still do things that are bad. Like these, like, like not that it really needs to be said in episode 37 of a podcast solely about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogies, but these films are fucking masterful. They are fucking masterful and I cannot imagine anyone surpassing them. But because they are so good, and because we all agree they are so good, it is then worthwhile for us to start to interrogate the things that are less good about it, so that we can then kind of a, like acclimate ourselves to to holding two thoughts in our head at one point, which is and at any one point, which is that this thing is good and also it occasionally fails. And this is also kind of the point that I feel like is really important, particularly vis-a-vis like setting up emotional catharsis, which is that like men or or well, or any character really generally uh, can be overall good and still do things that are bad and and that is a totally normal and good and workable narrative point and it's also a totally normal and good and workable political point and we just have to get comfortable <laughs> with allowing ourselves to sit in that kind of fucking quagmire between th- sometimes things that are good or also bad Following Theoden's return to the land of the living, he immediately visits the land of the dead. Oh. <laughs> well, the barrows outside Edoras, where the remains of his son Theodred have been interred. The tomb's entrance is center frame in the background, while in the fore a single white flower sprouts. This is symbol mean. It's the Bernard Hill acting hour, with a single wizard audience to hear his eulogy. Theoden's face takes up the left side of frame, while an unfocused Gandalf holds the right flank. Just wanted to call this out because this shot was used in the trailers, but it did not include the focus shift to Gandalf, so the trailer itself made me think Saruman would be here even before I saw the movie. Hmm. But sorry, back to Theoden, who is not only mourning the loss of his son, but the fact that he couldn't speak to Theodred in his last moments, or hell, that his series of decisions and indecisions precipitated his son's death. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. The young perish and the old linger. 
that I should live to see the last days of my house. Sedra's death was not of your making. No parents should have to bury that child. Gandalf the White has been described as both more familiar, but also more distant than the Great Pilgrim. But barring an insane Emily opinion, I think his words of consolation here are pretty damn good. <laughs> he was strong in life. His spirit will find its way to the halls of your fathers. The cemetery party comes to an abrupt end when two stupid kids show up to ruin everything. Aethan and Freyda, last seen fleeing a burning Westfold, have finally arrived at Edoras to raise the alarm. As the boy collapses, we move to Theoden's court in Meduseld, which kicks off with, in my opinion, the funniest moment in this trilogy. <laughs> they had no warning. They were unarmed. Now the wild men are moving through the Westfold, burning as they go. Rick Cotton Tree. Where is Mama? Yeah, this poor young girl fleeing war and the pillaging of her home is asking about her mama, and Eowyn just shushes the shit out of her. Love it. No notes. Five stars. We aren't here for comedy, though, despite Gimli's belches and burps along the way. With the king's mind no longer overthrown, he must now confront the political reality in Rohan. The Westfold has fallen, and Saruman presses his advantage, more so now with the backing and fear of Sauron. Theoden, a contemplative ruler here, is hesitant to plunge his people deeper into war in spite of Gandalf and Aragorn's warmongering. Theoden has a little spat with Aragorn, which I will capture, much to Emily's delight, but it also leads us into his next course of action. I know what it is you want of me, but I will not bring further death to my people. I will not risk open war. Open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. When last I looked, Theoden, not Aragorn, was king of Rohan. <coughs> then what is the king's decision? By order of the king, the city must empty. We make for the refuge of Helm's Deep. Do not burden yourself with treasures. Take only what provisions you need. Theoden's plans to lead his folks to Helm's Deep, which is a really good idea because it leads to one of, if not, the greatest battle sequence ever shot on film. Good foresight there, Theoden, setting up the film's finality. <laughs> and Theoden is not the only one interested in finishing this movie on an exclamation mark. Gandalf, too, is thinking... I need to show up really badass-like at the end, leading a cavalry charge that turns the tide and looks super good in slow motion. <laughs> but to do that, Gandalf is going to have to fuck off for a little while as he searches for the aid Rohan sorely needs at the moment. 
Gandalf departs with the single command for the future king of men. The defenses have to hold, and Aragorn assents. The Grey Pilgrim. That's what they used to call me. Three hundred lives of men I walked this earth, and now I have no time. With luck, my search will not be in vain. Look to my coming. At first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. In another bit of unintentional comedy, I crack up at Gandalf and Shadowfax nearly running over Legolas and Gimli on their way out of the stable. Too bad for Emily, Gandalf gets a hero shot as he rides out of Edoras, the horse and rider bound over the hills of Rohan. Speaking of too bad for Emily, we now get to Eowyn playing at swords. <laughs> she takes a blade from a chest, revels in it a bit, and then begins swinging it with a strong, disciplined stroke. I know little and less about swordplay, but the way Miranda Otto keeps one palm on the blade as she swings it is pretty dope. The camera approaches her from behind, and of course it's Aragorn, who parries her turn around Slash. I'm just going to drop in their full exchange here, because, meekly, I do like the words and performances here, but also so when Emily tells us why it's bad and dumb, you have all the context. (laughs) You have some skill with the blade. women of this country learned long ago. Those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. To stay behind bars until use and old age accept them. And all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. Shield maiden of Rohan. I do not think that will be your fate. Always important to have the male leads tell the woman supporting characters to keep reaching for the stars. Maybe you'll succeed even though the man won't take any action to actually help you achieve the equality <laughs> or standing you desire or eliminate the obstacles from your path. The Rohan strings kick in again as a melancholy enragement accompanies the people of Edoras leaving their homes behind and beginning the long trek overland to Helm's Deep, the stronghold of Rohan. This segues us back to Isengard, where Grima has shown up to provide some up-to-date intel on Theoden's movements. He anticipates the king's flight to Helm's Deep and tells the wizard that they'll be slow because of all the people. And not just the men. But the women, and the children, too. All that's to say, attacking the caravan to Helm's Deep makes a lot of tactical sense. Saruman gets the ugliest orc he can find and orders out the Warg Riders, where we will leave off for today. So despite having spent several episodes in Edoras now, 
we haven't really talked about Meduseld, so let's. The Golden Hall resides on the highest point of Edoras, itself built on a hill. Brago, son of Eor, was the one who began the project to erect the Great Hall, and it would be completed in the Third Age, 2569. Baldur, <laughs> son of Brago, celebrated this by doing something extremely stupid, which, mood. <laughs> I'm I'm only taking I'm sure this is something I've got just pirates of the Darabian here. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, just an aside, not really super relevant to the actual plot, but uh, uh, Earl does this track from uh, the city of Aldberg uh, to the city of Adaris, where he then builds uh, Metaseld. Um, Aldberg is important, of course, because it is where Aomer and Eowyn are from. Uh, so when Aomer ultimately becomes the king of the Mark at the very, very end of all of this shit, uh, he's also kind of replicating that 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 path of pilgrimage there. Um, and also, uh, I had this horrific moment playing uh, Lodger the other day where I was going through. Um, actually, I was playing with with Connor, my partner, and I was being a dick and, and over explaining all of the names to him. So I was like, oh, well, actually, uh, like Calumbell here is, you know, green and then name of unknown Numenor and descent. And this is how awful it is to play video games with me. And then I was like, oh, Aldberg, uh, which obviously means old city uh, and took me way too fucking long to clock that that is because uh, that's where Aerl starts his pilgrimage and ends it elsewhere. Uh, so there you go. I've been doing this shit for however, uh, like probably close to a year and a half now and didn't clock that until then. <laughs> the word Medusel derives from Mead Hall, but I also think it has some foundings in Beowulf, which, Emily? Yeah, uh, Beowulf. Um, I feel like I actually hyped up how much I was going to talk about Beowulf when we got into Two Towers, and I've been quite quiet on the topic since. Um, but uh, yes, the, the Mead Hall is a, is an important feature of Anglo-Saxon architecture. Generally, it is uh, one of the kind of most important settings in Beowulf itself. Uh, it is uh, in, in Beowulf, the Mead Hall is called like Heorot. Uh, please God, nobody roast me for how I pronounce that. I've only read the book. I've not heard any of it spoken out loud, except for that awful movie that I didn't really pay attention to. Um, but meat holes are are really important. Um, I don't think it is useful to think of them as sort of like the the normal kind of courts, uh, courtly halls of, of kings of, of non Anglo Saxon kings, like specifically like Italian sort of lords uh, or, uh, or 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 English kings, latter day English kings uh, even. Um, it's more important to think of them as kind of a, a, a pseudo public space um so before public spaces really existed before the public really even existed as we know it now um mead halls kind of formed this like pub cantina royal court forum almost roman forum style uh space where the the sort of middling and upper tiers of Anglo-Saxon society could come together and literally share a meal and be in the presence of the king, but also have, uh, you know, art performed for them, music performed for them. Um, the, the kind of key note here is that mead halls were meant to be incredibly lively, bustling places. It's the, it's the heart and the lifeblood of a kingdom. Uh, and so, in uh, and, and, and The Lord of the Rings with Metaseld, uh, as in Beowulf, seeing a mead hall that is not that is meant to trigger this feeling of something's deeply wrong here. There is something deeply wrong, not just in this building and not just in this setup, but in the entire kingdom, because this this beating heart of, of the kingdom is not beating as it should. Metuseld is physically described as having a straw roof that gives it a golden appearance from a distance. 
The walls have tapestries, often ordained with horses, and serve both as a throne room, but also a room for councils and feasts. The film version of Medusel pretty much used to this description. You can really see it following Gandalf's arrival when fire and light are allowed back in the hall. Five banners hang behind Theoden's seat as shown in the films. From left to right, they are a white horse head with streaming mane on a field of green. The next three banners are a white horse in full on a red field, one on a black field, and the last on a blue field, with something resembling the sun at the top of each of these heraldries. And finally, to the far right, is a sunburst and hills on a field of red and green split down the middle. That same sunburst logo appears on the outside of Meduseld as well, above the entrance. The wooden exterior is decorated in gold design patterns, many ending with a horse's head. Where the two buttresses meet at the front of the building, like where the two sides of the roof meet, I'm not an architect, so <laughs> shut up, are two horse heads facing each other, not unlike Theoden's sword and its crossguard. This double horse head can be seen at several points on Medusel's exterior, where various roofs meet, I guess. <laughs> there is also a single high seat on the roof, ostensibly a lookout or watchtower. It, too, is ordained with a horse head sculpture. Inside the hall, horse heads ordained the columns lining the main hall. Last week, when we discussed Eowyn informing Theoden his son had died, the scene starts with the downshot from the top of the hall, and two of these horse head fixtures take up half the frame in shadow. Yeah, I think this is, um, this film, these films really excel at detail work. Uh, I think it, it, in a way, few films before or, or since really have. Uh, I, and one of the things that I feel like is really important to point out here is there is no, in the world of the Lord of the Rings and in the world of the Rohirrim, um, there is no machine work for, there is no 3D printing. You cannot use a machine to carve out identical horse heads for your your houses. Everything has to be done by hand, by by craftsmen and by artisans. Um, and, and this kind of sculptural artistic display here with all of the horses um, is is one not just to reinforce to us that this is a culture that is based primarily around horses and around cavalries uh, and two not meant to just sort of give it like a in a general sort of cinematic sense oh a sense of like cohesion or whatever it's also meant to flag that this is a place that did at one point have a lot of money um it had a lot of money and it had a lot of loyalty um to, to have that extent of craftsmanship put to work in in this place um, would have been costly, both in terms of like actual finances, but also in terms of the amount of time and effort it would have taken the artisans to to make these things. Um, and so, as with you know, when when the hobbits are wandering through um, Eriador and seeing the kind of old ruins of uh greater kingdoms that were and you know on weathertop or or even in return of the king at the crossroads in athelion when um sam and frodo see see the statue of the king's head uh laureled with flowers um it is meant to say evoke that same sense of this was once a place of grandeur and this was once a place of light and beauty where where the kind of finer details were focused on and it wasn't just about surviving day to day uh, and the fact that these things always kind of sit in the darkness now and are not cared for and are covered in dust um, it is meant to underline just how far Rohan has fallen it's not like it was always a shithole it was once a good place and now look at what it's become and I, you know it's just magnificent detail work from from the creative team here mm. And all that detail means shit in the context of an audio <laughs> podcast, 
but I did want to talk about it. Adoris is one of the few locations we return to in this story, and it includes some major moments. So the effort and care that went into constructing the set and models can't be overappreciated, in my opinion. And it's also cool how cold and uninviting it was during Theoden's ensorcelment and how warm it seems afterwards. Um, a little bit of cheating, I guess, but, you know, <laughs> I think it really is effective the way that the hall is lit up following uh, Gandalf breaking the spell. We shift now to the barrows outside of Edoras, which are arranged according to the various lines of kings. The first line of kings uh, are to the right, from Eorl to Helm Hammerhand, a name we'll, that'll probably pop up in our latter coverage of the two towers. Um, the second line is to the left, with Freeleaf to Theoden. Um, so that basically takes us to events following the War of the Ring. And then another line would be made for Eomer and his line um, once that starts, the third line of kings, right? Yeah, that is fine. So what we see here is just uh, Gandalf and Theoden, but the extended edition has a much longer segment here at Theoden's grave. And I'm not even super familiar with it because I'm a theatrical edition truther and I barely remember this. But Emily, did you want to say anything? Because I know Eowyn gets a nice little song in this moment in the extended edition. Yeah, I do like the song. Um, I think it's totally out of character for book Eowyn, um, but I love the song in context in the film um, and the extended edition. I think it's one of these extended edition moments that I'm like, maybe they should have brought it through to the theatrical. Um, the thing that is really important for me, though, about the scene is the banging costume they've got Eowyn in. It is the only time in this series that I think they absolutely knock it out of the park with what she's wearing. She looks like, and I know this is totally going against everything I just said in our last episode about her not being a stone cold bitch, but she looks like a stone cold bitch. And it's exactly the kind of high and mighty vibe that she should have in her costuming. She looks totally different from all of the people around her. It's these rich fabrics. It's the high neck. It's the sort of, um, like aggressive but not like flashy um display of wealth and status that's all ao and it's all spot on um and i think like you know credit where credit is due miranda otto's performance of the song is heart-wrenching um it's a great bit of anglo-saxon translation there um and she she really does add this sort of beautiful element to the point where you know even i who uh feel almost no sympathy at all for the rohirrim and certainly don't give a fuck about theodred uh kind of go oh how sad that he's dead um and you know kind of forcing me to feel uh any sort of sympathetic emotion about these characters against my will is a hard thing to do so uh you know, credits to Miranda, Miranda Otto on that one. So I meant to ask Emily before we started recording, but how do you pronounce this flower? Symbol mean? Symbol mina? Symbol mina. Symbol mina. Okay. Um, I couldn't quite uh, piece it together from Bernard Hill's delivery. <laughs> yeah, I um, swallowed a bit. <laughs> but uh, Theoden mentioned symbol mina. Uh, the white flowers have ever grown on the tombs of his forebears. And anyone who's been around Tumblr has probably seen the meme where Gandalf responds, you have four bears? And then it cuts to Theoden crying. It's a really good meme. I'll post it once we go live with this episode. So symbol mine, or symbol mine, or Hermione, what am I saying here? <laughs> Is also known as Evermind and also possibly Alferin? Yeah. Uh, so Theron in uh, Quenya means mortal, and then Al is just a negating suffix, so it means not mortal, uh, literally immortal. Um, and this is a name occasionally used for it by the elves. I think actually in the Unfinished Tales, Legolas of all people names it like that. 
<clears throat> there's also a different name for it, a Sandra name, uh, which is Wilos, which is U-I-L-O-S. Uh, and that uh, means like gleaming ever white uh, in Cinder. And I believe, don't quote me on that. I'm trying to do it off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Um, but it is this uh, flower that that holds this kind of great symbolism i know that oh a flower holds symbolism wow well said emily um but it's this thing that like tolkien tried to weave throughout uh the sort of auxiliary text um didn't do it with great volume but did did sort of try and put it in there at places uh and is meant to kind of be this this kind of connection of like the kind of uh you know the the beauty and also fear of mortality and immortality uh, as felt uh equally by the elves and by the men so they most it most notably grows on the mounds outside Edoras, uh, specifically over Helm Hammerhand's resting place. Um, I guess he must be some really good fertilizer in his corpse era. And the flower is fictional to Arda, but based on the wood anemone found in Europe. Oh, ah, uh, yes. So it is. So it is. I had not clocked that before. So it is. Uh, interesting. Uh, I think we've got some anemones actually growing outside my office window. Um, yes, uh, I love this scene. Um, I love this scene more than words can say. Uh, I, you know, I the first couple times I watch this, even now, I don't really cry at Boromir's death. Like, you know, it gets to me and they're like, oh, this is sad. But I don't really cry at Boromir's death. I have never sat down to watch The Two Towers and not cried at this scene. Um, I, you know, Bernard Hill is a tour de force. Um, but I think there's something, you know, as we were kind of talking at the the top of this episode about like, um, women, you know, the, the effect on the viewer of, of, of seeing a woman character do something that women characters do not traditionally do. And, and that feeling of like shock and awe. Um, I think, you know, seeing, uh, a, a, a character who is a man and a father and a king in a time when we are told that like now i will point out that uh, historically uh, men did cry loads uh, but in our minds sort of anything pre-1950 men didn't cry um and um or not even 1950-1990 watching bernard hill break down in tears and cry is like a, is a tremendously difficult thing to watch he sells it so well and it's such a brilliant scene um, my necessary boring book nerd caveat is that this does not in any way resemble book Theoden, not even a little bit. Like his first question um, or his first concern uh, when he kind of comes back to himself is be- talking about how sad he is that Boromir is dead, even though Theodred, his only son, is also dead. Um, but Bernard Hill sells it like, like no other in this film. Uh, and I think it is, for me, I would rank this this moment above even anything in Helm's Deep. Uh, just for like the emotional kind of impact it has for me uh, and, and the way that it kind of ties this entire film together uh, just in such a spectacular and emotionally poignant and well-crafted way uh, and and really playing off of the power of like even even Ian McKellen's Gandalf who's just dick at all times even he showing sympathy for 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 Bernard Hill's Theoden is just like um yeah, it's a, it's a powerhouse moment of this film. This is the mitochondria of the two towers. Yeah, so you heard it here first. Uh, random scene that no one remembers. Much better than Helm's Deep, the greatest battle <laughs> of all time. Uh, no, I'm teasing, of course. It's true. <laughs> the funeral, I guess, is cut short because the kids arrive um, because the movies, as all movies tend to do, like to have cause and effect shit to lead us from plot point A to plot point B. Though I will say I love the boy Pratt falling off the horse. <laughs> that looks like it hurt really badly. It really does. Um, 
<laughs> what I do like about this little, you know, the kids uh, who we saw when the Westfold was burning, like way back um, at the beginning of this film, and I think in our third or fourth episode uh, covering this movie, uh, I do like that it at least gives some sense of like distance and time to this world. Um, so it's not just people showing up like at the moment they need to show up. Um, <laughs> I just like that it took some time for them to get there and that our audience didn't or our characters didn't really know exactly what was going on on the Westfold um, or all that stuff until the kids arrived. So, um, yeah, I just like that little bit. You're right, but I hate that you're right. So I'm going to grouse anyways. Um, I, I I don't think I'm ever going to recover from you pointing out how incredibly funny it is uh, that that uh, Eowyn uh, shushes these fucking poor traumatized kids. But it's also really funny because that basically ends their plot. Like, I think we see some sort of like mini reunion again at Home's Deep where the mom is like Aethane or whatever the other kid's girl, girl's name is. Um, and... And that's kind of it. And these characters have like no emotional depth. Uh, and and really, um, if you told them a story from their point of view, it is basically their house and their livelihood gets burned down because of an absentee king who can't be fucking bothered to defend his borders. Uh, they ride for days, tired and hungry and alone on a horse to get to the capital. He falls and presumably hurts himself quite badly because that is quite a big horse. It's picked up by like the lady of the house of the most important house in, in, in their kingdom and then immediately gets told to shut the fuck up. <laughs> and that's it for them. That's fucking it. That would be a village, villain origin story for any other character. Uh, <laughs> I Yes, so you are right. It does give a sense of like time and distance, but God, I wish that someone would do a spinoff where like this kid just takes out all of like Aomer's family or whatever in revenge. Yeah, I was actually, uh, I wouldn't call it surprise, but this is a place where I would have expected maybe the uh, Aothane would have shown up in like the battle of Helm's deep as like one of the like random little boys getting swords when um, mm. Legolas is talking about how few winters some of these soldiers have seen something like that. But nope, you're right. Uh, they reunite with mama at Helm's deep and we assume they lived happily ever after. <laughs> So we'll segue now into uh, Theoden's war council. And Theoden is already frustrated by all this shit, rubbing his forehead while sitting on his throne. To his right is Gandalf, occupying the space previously seen by, or previously occupied by Grima Wormtongue. The color palette is completely flipped from before, though. Grima's dark robes and hair are replaced with the white of Gandalf. (laughs) The unwelcoming, poorly lit hall of before is gone. Now several braziers give fire and warmth to the setting, with Theoden resplendent in his red robe sitting on his golden throne. Gandalf the warmonger, Theoden reluctant. (laughs) Gimli, for his part, is all comic relief here. Random reaction shots of him drinking drinking with water spilling down his beard or him burping. This mostly works. It's not obtrusive, even though I feel like Gimli would have better manners because he's a proper lad. Um, But it's been a lot of like, epic shit and mourning and, you know, breaking wizard spells and deliberation. So I see this existing to lighten up the tone, and it makes sense a little bit from a pacing standpoint. The Aomer question comes up here, and even as a full Two Towers apologist, Theoden not considering calling his nephew back isn't really con- isn't really a convincing argument. He's just like, he's far away. I <laughs> guess I'll die. <laughs> Uh, you know what? That's fair and correct. Um, and I actually, I didn't realize just until just now that this was a thing that people nitpicked on because I've never really thought twice about it. And um, 
But he is, I mean, they say he's like thousands of miles away or something, and Rahan is not that big, uh, so he's definitely not that far away. But he's like quite far away. And also, Theoden has fucked up really badly and is a very prideful man. It does not surprise me in the least that he would be like, "Mm, let's maybe not get the guy back who has been repeatedly telling me to do things uh, that I've been ignoring for all of this time. Maybe I don't want to get the like, I told you so dance in my face. I'm totally fine with that. Like, I think that's legit. I also wouldn't face up to my faults like that. So I'm with the Aiden on that one. Okay. I see. I'm thinking like a king here and what would be best for my people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which Aragorn, I think, does have the right of it. It would take little and less to convince Eomer to come back. Um, I think they have to kind of explicitly dismiss it now just so the characters can say they considered it. But yeah, it's more the film's ending kind of dictating the machinations here, less so than um, the film's ending organically coming out of the two towers. (laughs) Theoden, not Aragorn, is king. Gotta highlight that little jab by Theoden for Emily. (laughs) I do like how Gandalf, so what's the king's decision line, leads us right into the next scene. Instead of Theoden telling us the audience that he's evacuating to Helm's Deep, we cut to Hama deliver the message to the people instead. Okay, all right. I've said I was going to hold off. I really said I was going to hold off, and I have no self-discipline, so I'm not going to hold off. Um, Hama, 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 my man, Hama, 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 Hama Chameleon. Um, he gets done so dirty by these movies, and it drives me nuts. Um, Hama is the only certified male feminist in the entire book series. He is the only one. Um, this scene plays out incredibly differently in the books i you know suffice it to say this there's a lot of divergences here not the least of which is that aogar is present because he hasn't been banished he was just thrown in jail which is a lot more embarrassing for everybody involved um the decision to go to helm's deep is certainly controversial um but it's not really the seminal kind of point of the scene Ooh, i've just spun myself up into an even more aggressive take on this right so so the point of the scene is not whether or not they're going to go to helm's deep like like, like Theoden is pretty decisively like, we're going to Helm's Deep. Uh, and Aragorn and Gandalf kind of grumble a bit, but they they, they know that they can't really meddle enough to, to deal with that, so they're just going to have to adjust. And the, the, the focal point of this scene is actually Theoden saying, me and Aomer are going to go off to Helm's Deep and to defend uh, our king, or to draw Saruman away and defend our kingdom there. While we are away, because we are uh, king and heir to the king, you will need someone else to to lead in our stead because there's a very good chance that we will never come back. Uh, and Aomer is the last of of the line of Aeril. So he says to his, uh, he addresses his, you know, assembled uh, lords in the room, pick from among yourselves who to be, who to, who to rule over you because the house of Aeril is effectively spent. And Hama, male feminist bar none, says, actually, the House of Errol is not spent. We're going to pick someone else from the House of Errol. And and Theoden goes, no, no, dude, you mis- you misheard me. You misunderstood me. I'm taking Aramur with me. And Hama says, I speak not of Aramur. I speak of Eowyn. And this is the line that, like, when I read it, I had to, like, jump for fucking joy. It was so good. He, 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 says, he, he says of her, she is fearless and high-hearted. Um, which is basically saying she's fucking brave as shit. Uh, and we, as the assembled lords of the Rittermark, love her so much that she would be, quote, as a lord to us. Uh, and they effectively elect her king 
in Theoden's stead. And Theoden has spent all of this time talking about how, you know, with Aomer gone, there's no one left really from the house of Aeril, and oh, they're going to have to pick someone else. And it's Hama who goes, absolutely the fuck not, dude. You have someone in your family who we all respect and love enough as a king to elect here, effectively elect here to be our king in your stead. And it is one of the most magnificent and like incredible moments, emotionally incredible moments in the books, because it is the it is this forced realization by Tolkien. Tolkien is taking us as the readers aside by using Hama and being like, you all have forgotten that Eowyn is here. You all have forgotten that she is not set dressing. You are just like Theoden, the neglectful king, and 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 you have done this character wrong. And this side character, who we are barely going to see again throughout the rest of this series, is now coming in here to check you on this and to say, "Don't forget about Eowyn." To, you know, to quote Abigail Adams, "Don't forget the ladies." And 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 it's magnificent writing. And it, it's so you know, for me as someone who spends too much time thinking about Eowyn um, and and you know the sort of degradation she suffers, it must have been such a moment of like incredible validation uh and sort of like justification and and like real self-realization for her to know that that she was picked when her king was her king and her uncle was essentially saying oh but there's fucking nobody left to pick um and you know she has a complicated relationship going from there but but i want to highlight the fact that hama you know in in the books hama stands up to his king and uh not just stands up to his king but but stands up for his king's neglected niece in just a wonderful way. Um, and it sucks to see that removed from from him in here in, in the movies and then to see that kind of shitty death he gets uh, in the non-scene later. Uh, so justice for Hama. Um, I'm just going to uh, proposition that if we're able to uh, get some more patrons and expand our Patreon and we start doing merch, we make a shirt that's like one male feminist to rule them all. And it's just a giant headshot <laughs> of Hama on the shirt. Um, I think yes. that, um, I, I feel like if we do any kind of merch, it has to be like super deranged and insane <laughs> um, to properly reflect us. And I feel like that, that could be the thing that that could be one that really takes off for us. Oh yeah. I and mean, people will be like, isn't that the guy that got eaten by a wolf? <laughs> and we'll be like, <laughs> yes, <"Me> sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so I called out how Aragorn was lecturing Theoden about how open war is upon them. But afterwards, uh, speaking to Gimli, Aragorn seemingly defends Theoden's choice of Helm's Deep based on its past utility. Again, we see Aragorn both criticizing and supporting Theoden, though he definitely freely criticizes publicly and, su- and you know, supports him privately to Gimli in this case. I think more to Aragorn's arc, we are getting to see him consider all of the king's decisions without having to make any of them. He can <laughs> be near and distant to the choice and see all sides, perhaps. He will need you before the end. The people of Rohan will need you, which is a line I'm going to charitably read as being about the short-term, short-term threat, but could also apply to Aragorn's long-term destination as the king of men. Then we get to the Gandalf line, 300 lives of men I've walked this earth, and now I have no time. It's a line that sticks with me. It adds a lot, in my opinion, to Gandalf's pathos. Someone granted essentially eternal life, but here, at the end of all things, even he can feel the lack of a future. It just makes me realize how big the story of Middle-earth is, and what a little sliver of it we are actually getting. 
18-year-old me, not having read any of this, was immediately curious about what else Gandalf has done in his days, though the Hobbit movies ended up not really satisfying me with those answers. <laughs> yeah, I say this bit pretty much constantly whenever I'm late on a task uh, and have procrastinated too long, uh, and I think that's the kind of grotesquely cynical spirit in which I take this, which is me and Gandalf also wasted 300 lives of men doing sweet fuck all and are now paying the price for it. <laughs> He also gives us his uh, portentous phrase, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. Um, I like how during the scene, the light is coming into the stables in a similar way to how it will come into the Hornburg when Mm -hmm. Gimli recalls it near the end of this film. And it's here, this, you know, line obviously exists just to set up the film's finish, which I will once again defend just because I find the finish as cathartic as it comes. Uh, See our earlier discussion about emotional (laughs) catharsis. Um, And... um, What's it called? It kind of feels weird that this is like a big moment, just like in the middle chapter of our story. And it's not even the entire middle of the two towers. It's just kind of, you know, the middle of the two towers kind of. Um, But I really do like how at least they knew they wanted to do this badass ending and are making sure all the machinations are in place for that to happen. Oh boy, Eowyn swordplay. Do I even (laughs) want to touch this? Um, I'll just say I think shield maiden is a really cool word that I think I completely misunderstood until I started working with Emily. Um, (laughs) I just assumed it was a maiden with a shield and likely a sword because it's usually good to have both and not one (laughs) or the other. Um, I do enjoy Aragorn whipping out his dagger. Um, It's the same one that he stuck in Lurtz's leg at Parth Galen and had to deflect away. I also like that the even star is very prominent around Aragorn's necklace, uh, which I think is to remind the audience it's there uh, because Aragorn, Aragorn will ask or will be asked about it later, um, and then it'll be like the one thing that Legolas recovers when Aragorn does his little <laughs> like splash mountain routine in the middle of this movie. <laughs> nice, that rocks the splash mountain routine. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> Yeah, all right. Um, I this scene hurts. Uh, it cuts deep. Uh, this takes one of my favorite lines. Uh, from actually, it mashes together a couple different lines. Uh, from the book, so it takes the "What do you fear?" a cage bit, which is fine. That is a conversation that Aon and Aragorn have, though at a slightly later point in the book. So there's a bit more kind of like pressure on it. Um, but then it also takes, and this is the thing that I've complained about. Uh, probably for obnoxiously. Uh, too many tweets uh, on on Twitter. Um, it genders Eowyn's bitch about uh, those who do not have swords may still die upon them. Um, she says the women of this country learned long ago that those who do not have swords may still die upon them. Uh, this is what she says to Aragorn. This line comes, this is a line from the book, uh, and it comes in the Houses of the Healing when she's having a conversation with the Warden of the Houses of the Healing after she's killed the Witch King and is injured and is desperately wanting to ride off to the Black Gate with all of the men because she's woken up not dead and ultimately just wants to be dead. And she does not say the women of this country. Um, there is no gendering to this. She says, clear and simple, those without swords may still die upon them. And it's important that it isn't gendered because she is not gendering herself in this moment. She is making an argument on the basis of the futility of their fight. Uh, And she is saying to the warden, look, we're all fucked and we know we're all fucked. Like you even can't admit, like you can't even bring yourself to tell me that there is still like brighter days ahead. So since we are all about to die, why won't you just let me die in the way that I want to die? Because you and I both know that even if you take a sword away from me, I'm still going to die on a sword. 
there is no gendering because she is making an equivocation there between herself and himself. They are both going to die at the the the, the point of a sword. And here it's gendered. And it's gendered in a really interesting way because it says that the women of the mark have somehow seen violence that comes at the point of a sword. Now, I doubt that like Philippa Boyens thought this far into it, but what this basically implies is that the her family, the House of Aeorl, have stewarded the kingdom of Rohan so bad that it's not just on the front lines that they're getting absolutely fucked up. They're getting fucked up so badly that people with swords are coming into the houses of the mark and killing the women and the children there. That's a massive governance fuck up. That's huge. Um, and I, as I keep going back and forth on, it's adding gender into a place where there's no gender. Like, like Eowyn's big bitch about not being able to go out and fight is, is not because she's being told she can't go out and fight because she's a woman. She's being told she can't go out and fight because she's a high born woman. She feels absolutely fuck all solidarity with the average serving woman. She literally positions herself against a serving woman in this conversation that happens in the books. Uh, and, and certainly never makes an argument for like the plight of women or shows any concern for women writ large, um, except for when she can use it cynically. And so just like adding this in here so that she can kind of be the voice for all women is like infuriating. Uh, not not least because I actually think the far better and more interesting kind of accidental voice uh, for women in this kind of whole plot ends up really being uh, Mary. Um, and I think like Mary's feminization in, in the books and to a, a lesser extent in the films is a far more interesting conversation about like the nature of gender than this like weirdly MacGyvered like I, I'm just kind of imagining like them hitting Eowyn with like a sledgehammer and like trying to force her into a box being like, get the fuck into the woman box. Like who told you you can get out? Uh, and this scene is the scene where that like feels most apparent to me. And I hope you can all see why I said very little about the scene. <laughs> uh, that takes us to Theoden and Aragorn leading the people of Edoras away as the Rohan score mourns. Theoden taking one longing look back at his hall. There's an extended edition scene where he tells Gambling that they will return, but Theoden's eyes here are not so sure. As the Rohirrim depart Edoras, Grima narration leads us into a scene with him and Saruman back at Orthanc. Grima basically reveals the plan he assumes Theoden will execute. Christopher Lee giving us an iconic eyebrow raise, and he orders out the Warg Riders. We'll discuss the wargs when they descend upon the caravan next time we hang with these specific characters. We only get to see the shadows of the wargs in the pit below, which reminds me a lot of the Lion King and how Scar's death is mm-hmm. de- depicted at the hands of the hyenas. And as I kind of mentioned in our rec- recap, the lead orc groomsman, or I don't know what to call him, for <laughs> the wargs is an especially ugly design that I just love. It's great. He has a great smile, too. No nuts. <laughs> Are you all sick of hearing about Eowyn? Good. You're not. You're not allowed to be. Uh, Shield Maiden time. Um, The Shield Maidens are really interesting. Uh, They're not actually... Like, they are interesting, uh, but it's more interesting for the ways in which they're not really interesting because they're actually quite a mundane feature of these books. Uh, And what's interesting is all the different ways they've been interpreted and adapted. Um, The facts... Oh, is it Jim Dale who narrates Pushing Daisies and starts, like, every episode of Pushing Daisies with the facts are these? 
Uh, I wish I could do that. Um, the facts are these. Um, the Shield Maidens are a minuscule part of The Lord of the Rings as a published entity. This was not always the case. Um, Tolkien actually considered at one point having Eowyn lead a uh, battalion of Shield Maidens to the battle at Helm's Deep, or the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, rather. And they were meant to be sort of Amazonian warriors. Uh, and, and he may have actually written a draft of it that included that, but but Leader kind of went back and considered that this uh, ultimately undermined his his uh, central critique of, of Rohan and his, his whole point of creating Eowyn as a character uh, and, and scrapped that version. Uh, and so that version never never really came to, to light or came to fruition. Uh, so the version of the Shield Maidens that we have in uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, is, is a kind of ephemeral purely mythical shield maiden. Uh, this film and a couple of the other sort of like auxiliary uh, Lord of the Rings-esque or Lord of the Rings influenced uh, adaptations or, or texts uh, or games or whatever will have you think that the shield maidens uh, were prevalent in Rohan, that, that, that shield being a shield maiden was as much of a profession as being an archer in the the row here in the in the um Aotheon. uh this is not the case we have absolutely no evidence for this whatsoever um actually if if you look at the the sort of historical basis uh, upon which uh, uh Tolkien uh founded his sort of idea of the shield maidens which as i said is the amazon the amazonian warriors um we we get a clearer sense of what he's trying to do here which is Amazonian warriors don't exist and they never have. Uh, you know, we get sort of uh, single uh, incidences of them, like uh, Boudicca is, an, is a good example of this, uh, or uh, depending on who you ask, Joan of Arc is a good example of this, these sort of important women warriors throughout history. Um, but as a whole, there has never been like a tribe of women warriors who have been renowned the world over. Uh, and, and certainly there's not anything in uh, in uh, recent history to to legitimize that. But nevertheless, this myth of the Amazonian warriors or within sort of the Tolkien universe, uh, the, the shield maidens persist, and it persists because it ser- serves a really important purpose, um, which is it serves to legitimize war for women. Um, now, uh these are that that's sort of the facts in canon. Uh, I'm gonna do real quick, kind of what I think the correct interpretation, which is my interpretation of the Shield Maidens, is, and then we can talk a bit about one uh, or some a couple different approaches that I think are particularly effective or ineffective. Um, the as far as I'm concerned, the Shield Maidens are the carrot on a stick for the women of Rohan. Um, we are told uh, in explicit terms that the only way to make something of yourself in Rohan is to be a warrior. Uh, and if you are are not a warrior of great renown, you are effectively nothing in the Rittermark. But we also know that there are no women in in uh, in the Aeotheod. Uh, so so uh, if you want to become a person of consequence in the Mark, you have to be a warrior. But women can't become warriors, so women are effectively barred from becoming a person of consequence. Uh, that in itself is the sort of thing that could uh, ultimately uh, delegitimize a, a society and, and ultimately, ultimately sort of unfurl the like cultural narrative that keeps political stability in a society. Because if all of these women start to realize, start to come to their like feminist consciousness and realize that the only way to be valued in, in the world that they live in is by doing something they are literally barred from doing, well, then you're going to have a bit of a revolt on your hands. So enter the concept of the shield maiden. And what the shield maiden says, the shield maiden myth says it does, is that, oh, well, there are, or there have been women 
warriors of great renown. There, there totally have been. It's just that there aren't any right now. But that's not to say that there have never been and could never be. There totally could be if you just worked slightly harder at it. And if the time and the conditions around you were right, you could totally have this as a route open to you. And so then it problematizes and kind of opens up the potential for a shield maiden or for for a woman warrior in a way that ultimately defangs any sort of opposition to this warrior culture on the basis of gender because they can point to this myth and say well see we we talk about uh women warriors in a really positive sense so it's not that we're against them it's just that really women haven't proven you know the women of our age haven't proven themselves uh successful enough or competent enough to to join the ranks uh and theoretically one day they could so that, that's my take on it. I think it's basically like a, 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 a like a patriarchal legitimizing device for this kind of warrior culture. And in, in Rohan, uh, you may have <laughs> differing takes on that, and that's totally legit. Although I'm obviously the most correct person to have ever walked the earth, so try again. Um, but there are loads of other takes on the the shield maiden myth uh, in uh, in the kind of world of adaptations of the Lord of the Rings. This movie gives us a version, a variation. Which is actually interesting because they essentially erase the existence of shield maidens in favor of putting up Eowyn as the central figure. And that one kind of made me laugh because it was like, they're so desperate to put women front and center. And they could have done so with this like myth of these Amazonian women, but they actually just got rid of the Amazonian women entirely. <laughs> so they could have had more women, but they're like, fuck that. We don't, we don't do that. We just want one woman. One woman's enough. Uh, so that one's funny. Um, the Lord of the Rings Online, which is, I think, the finest adaptation of Tolkien's material ever done, uh, takes really different and kind of interesting approach to it, which is kind of like what I call the Xena light approach, um, which basically says that like there are certainly women that are involved in um, in in uh, you know the sort of arts of war within the Rittermark, um, but they're there for. Uh, reasons not entirely dissimilar to <laughs> Xena from Xena Warrior Princess, which is that like they've kind of run out of places to go. Uh, and so they are part of the the war effort in their own way as warriors of some sort of stature, but it's because they're kind of at the, the end of their line, the the, the bottom of the barrel. Uh, and if they don't go there, there's no way for this society to, to care for them in any other way. And so there's a kind of desperation element. Uh, and that one, at first, I was really against it. And I was like, no, this takes away the like kind of important uniqueness of Eowyn's position where like she's being told no but this myth exists but actually I've kind of come around to it and I think it's a it's a surprisingly successful take on it um but this is kind of the other pull of attraction for it uh, and then the other even fucking weirder one that I don't even really feel like legitimizing by talking about here but I'm going to do nonetheless because I want to get my rage out uh, on it is people who interpret the shield maiden myth to mean that they're just like there's total gender parity and in Rohan, in the books, uh, and to that I say, learn to fucking read uh, and get out of my face. Uh, but yes, <laughs> this is the shield maiden myth uh, in principle. Um, certainly within like the the uh, like recent literary history for Tolkien, he's basing it on the the sort of Norse shield maidens. So like Brunhilde is an example of this. There's a TV show called Vikings, I think it is, um, that kind of purports to like riff on this myth. Um, although I had a friend, uh, I asked a friend about it and I was like, Oh, how does this deal with the shield maidens? And she sent me back uh, a thousand characters of, uh, LL don't ask. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you've seen Vikings and think it does well, please write in. Cause I would love to hear about it without having to pay to watch it. 
yes, that in Sparknotes is the Shield Maidens of Rohan. Yeah, it's funny just because I took zero time out of my life up until this point and including this point to ever (laughs) interrogate that phrase (laughs) any further. Um, I just took it on face value. It's like, oh, this is a woman warrior and like kind of just left it at that, Um, which I mean, I guess it's part of the way there. But um, I do I do like how that there's just a lot there's a lot more to that tradition, the myth, um, that kind of pillar of storytelling than I had previously really thought about. But um, yeah, it's not like this film specifically invites you to think about it with any kind of depth or profundity. Nope. So classic treatment of women there. <laughs> Got to love racing women. Is that, <laughs> is that, is that the note we're going to uh, wind this episode <laughs> of the podcast on? Uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> the broads episode. They don't exist. And that closes the book on this episode of my brother, my captain, my podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. By now, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, which is a fully dedicated Patreon to this podcast. And I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me wrapping up my coverage of Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and possibly already on the Nauticast podcast discussing Sansa 3 in a Storm of Swords and soon House of the Dragon coming to HBO. Mm-hmm. I was not paid to say that. <laughs> and I've been Emily, also not paid by HBO, uh, but could be for a pretty penny. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at tweeting where uh, when all of the men have died in battle and in honor, I will be left to be burned in the house uh, for the men shall need me no more. Um, and let me just take this uh, space to say, HBO, if you want to give us money and have us do stuff, like I can sell out all my principles yes. real fast for the yeah. right price. Yeah. So <laughs> please. please hit us up. <laughs> uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Gandalf the White has been described as both more familiar, but also more distant than the gay, gray pilgrim. <laughs> 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 <laughs>